You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. Church, have you ever felt like this before? This is a psalm of David, as he is fearing his own son, Absalom, who has taken the throne. David is very afraid, suffering. Have you ever felt this way before? Perhaps, maybe you feel that when you look at your circumstances, the situations that you're in, maybe, maybe God's forgotten about me. Maybe God just, he, maybe he's distracted, maybe he's busy helping other people, and he just has forgotten my situation because If he knew what I was dealing with, certainly he would resolve this. Maybe you feel as if God's face is hidden from you, that he's not even looking upon you for for whatever reason. If if God was all-powerful, if we we believe he's all-powerful, we believe he's good, then maybe he's just looking elsewhere. Maybe his face is not looking upon my situation, because certainly if he saw my situation, he would relieve this distress and he would pull me out of this suffering. Maybe you felt that before. Having sorrow in your heart all the day. Perhaps we don't have enemies like David did. At least not that we know about. But I'm sure that Peter's audience, the one whom he is writing, may feel these very things. They've been exiled out of their country. They are being persecuted by the Roman Emperor Nero and his government, literally being dragged to their death. And Peter's writing to encourage them. Peter's writing to encourage them in, in persevering through suffering and, and persevering through persecution. But I can imagine that at some point they, they may begin to wonder, how much longer do we have to endure this? God, are you even looking at us? Are you even watching us? And perhaps they may be driven to despair and may be tempted to give up, to not endure. What does God's word say to these folks and to us? Who perhaps our endurance may begin to wane when we are following the Lord and we're we're giving our lives to him and yet suffering happens and suffering happens and, and Lord, how much longer must we endure? I believe today's text provides what is ultimately needed to give them that endurance and hope to press on in the midst of difficult persecution, yet our task is not without challenges. 
Today we come upon perhaps the most difficult text in all of Scripture. We're looking at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. I'll read the text and we'll dive in. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having, put, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him." Now, Martin Luther, the one who ignited the Protestant Reformation, and speaking of these verses in front of us, especially verse 19, he says, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainly just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. Well, fantastic. Here I am, coming to preach a text and explain a portion of God's word that Martin Luther, the one who started the Protestant Reformation, said that he can explain and no one has been able to explain it. This should be fun. The complexities of this passage come down to the problems of verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, verse 18, we don't have a problem with. Verse 18 was a glorious, we looked at this last week, that Christ died for sins once for all. He was the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the just for the unjust, his substitutionary atonement. He died that he might bring us to God, amen and amen. He's been put to death in the flesh, but made alive through the power of the Spirit. That is good stuff. But then we get to verse 19. Jesus going to proclaiming to spirits now in prison. One commentator notes concerning this verse, says the exegetical questions basically come down to these. Where did Christ go? When did he go? To whom did he speak? What did he say? Different answers to each of these questions can be found resulting in a labyrinth of exegetical options, each of which has no clear overwhelming claim to certainty with one calculating 180 different exegetical combinations in theory. Well, in the realm of 180 possible options on this one verse alone, how are we going to come to an understanding of this passage that's in front of us? Even as I studied some of the scholars who I trust the most, looking at their commentaries, every single one of them had a different view on this particular verse. With all this difference, David Helm writes, Well, so much for today's working pastor getting insights from learned divines. And I feel that today, church. 180 different options. Well, that makes today's task a bit challenging. I want to share a word from the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. I'm going to leave you to guess what year that was written in. says this, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Well, obviously, we're ha having a text in which it is not very clear. 
Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due sense of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So what I want us to say here is that even though this passage comes with some difficulty and complexities that does not rock our view of Scripture or our faith in the Gospel. But what are we to do with this passage? I want us to lay some ground rules before we dive in. Number one, we need to limit our reach. We're not going to settle in a 45-minute sermon centuries of debate among 180 different exegetical options, I can guarantee that I'm not going to offer the decisive word today that will change the outcome of Christianity for years to come. I'm just not that good. Second, we need to refrain from reducing the preaching of the word to the mere rehearsing of the history of interpretation. As we preach, I'm not going to tell you all of the different views of this particular passage that have been passed down for two thousands of years. That's not the purpose of preaching. And I don't believe that would be helpful to us. So what do we want to do? Third, what we hope to do, what I hope to do is to present from this text what can be known in such a way that it will encourage us and instruct us toward maturity in Christ. Can we do that this morning? And more specifically, I want us to preach this text in a way that will specifically help us in our own endurance of suffering for the sake of the gospel. The first point I'd like us to make here is this. And I have two points. So this is either going to be a really quick sermon or these are going to be really long points. I'm not sure how it's going to go. Number one, the Christ who was reviled will be the Christ who reigns. The Christ who was reviled will be the Christ who reigns. Although our text does have some challenges, and I don't want to ignore those, but I believe there's a general flow to this passage that we need to see, but let's back up for a moment. First, let us remember our audience, as we've already said before, they're being persecuted under the hands of Emperor Nero. And the spread of Christianity has caused wives to, to come to faith in Christ, and they're still married to unbelieving husbands who worship the pagan gods of the Gentiles. The themes of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 is, is to be submissive, to, to submit to these ungodly rulers, for wives to submit to their unbelieving husbands. And all of this follows the example of Jesus in chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, who was submissive. It says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. We see a submissive Christ. It seems almost as if Jesus is just being passive and has given up. And, and perhaps this is the reason Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter was looking for a, a Messiah who would conquer Rome. Uh, he, he was looking for a Messiah who would conquer the Roman government from, from their oppression and and Jesus was the guy. Earlier, and we've looked at this in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew in, in our Sunday school class, that Jesus had, had proclaimed that he would be crucified, that he, that he would rise again. Well, Peter must have myth, missed that resurrection part, but he said, no, Jesus, you can't do that. We're not going to let that happen. God, 
And in his mind, Jesus can't die because if Jesus dies, then this whole plan of overthrowing the Romans is thwarted. Obviously, we know from Scripture that was not God's plan. God had a plan to overthrow a much greater enemy than Rome. But Peter there, as Jesus is being accused in the, in the courts, and Jesus is silent, not standing up for himself, being reviled, not reviling in return. Peter's looking on, and maybe he's, maybe he's a little disappointed, or maybe he's thinking, maybe, maybe we got this wrong, maybe Jesus isn't the guy. But then he denies Jesus three, hey, aren't you, aren't you one of his disciples? Oh, who, who, that guy over there who's, no, I, mm, don't, don't associate me with him. And Peter denies any association with Jesus because Jesus' submission almost looks like passivity. And Peter comes around, obviously, because he's writing this letter to encourage us to look to Christ as an example. As, as, the, as we are being reviled, we are to look to Christ who is reviled. Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his body. And Peter, through his letter, emphasizes that Jesus' suffering and his death. Even in 1 Peter 1, 15-19, our, our call to be holy is because we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. In chapter 2, Jesus' submission, uh, is he, he is suff his suffering serves as an example for us to endure suffering and to be submissive. Even in 3.18, we saw last week and we've mentioned already today, we see that we ought to suffer for doing good because Christ also suffered. And we see again, even in chapter 4, verse 1, Christ also suffered in the flesh, the sufferings of Christ is a prominent theme in Peter's letter. Now Peter is seeking to encourage these believers, but how much more encouragement can they take? How much more encouragement can they take as they endure such hostility? As I quoted Psalm 13 early, how long, O Lord, will you forget us? How long will you hide your face from us? God, are you even looking how long will my enemy be exalted over me? God, our, our loved ones are being dragged to their death by Nero and his government. How long must this happen? And these believing wives, God, I'm, I'm submitting to my unbelieving husband. You, Peter, you've told me to do this. You've told me that, that, that if I be submissive, then I'll win them with the word. They still haven't come to faith in Christ. I'm still enduring this. How much longer? Maybe despair begins to set in. I think the ones to whom Peter writes feels this deep in their bones. When we think of persecution, we can't imagine what they experienced. Their suffering perhaps may lead them to despair. Is there an end in sight? And so far, Peter has encouraged them to look to the cross. We've been redeemed by precious blood in 119. He bore our sins in his body on the cross in chapter 2, verse 24. He died for the sins once for all in 318. And even in 318, we begin with the Christ who died. And in 4.1, we see Christ who suffered. So much of this emphasis in 1 Peter is to look at the suffering Jesus. When we see the sufferings of Christ, then we ought not to be surprised by suffering in John 15, 18, it says, if the world hates you, 
Know that it hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of this world, and I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. The world hated Christ, it will indeed hate us. So Peter again says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. I want you to imagine these believers in 1 Peter, the ones to whom he's writing, and thinking, Peter, okay, we're not surprised by the suffering. We, we know that we should have expected this when we signed up to follow you, but how much longer must we endure? In the midst of all of this suffering, he's counseled them to holy and Christ-like conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. Keep your conduct excellent among the Gentiles. Wives, win over your husbands by your conduct. We're called to suffer for doing what is right, but how long? How long must we endure? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Maybe you've been in situations and you felt similar. Oh, but here's the good news. There is light at the end of the tunnel. In our passage today, Peter is telling them to look beyond the cross and to see the resurrected Son of God. He was put to death in the flesh, but praise God, he was made alive by the Spirit. In church, while there's a lot of confusion in these verses in 1921, look with me at the end of verse 21. We see the, 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 uh, the resurrected Christ. And look at verse 22 where Jesus is now. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The one who subjected himself to earthly powers in 1 Peter 2.23, those powers are now subject to Christ who reigns. The victory of Christ is to be a beacon of hope to suffering believers. We do not worship and serve a defeated Savior who's still on the cross, but we serve a resurrected, victorious King who's on the throne. Dear church, keep pressing on because Christ is the victor. Christ has conquered. This is good news. The writer of Hebrews seems to promote this same idea. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, it's what we know as the hall of faith. We see a long list of men and women who endured quite a bit for their faith, some accomplishing great things. And at the end of verse at the end of chapter 11 in verses 36 through 37, we get some nameless believers who will never know, who are mocked and scourged and shamed and imprisoned. We see these folks were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death with the sword. Afflicted and ill-treated, and others were forced to go around in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute and wandering around in deserts and mountains and living in caves and holes in the ground. What a life for those who have given their lives to Jesus. Now church, if this is your best life now, I think Joel Osteen's missing a few details in his version of Christianity. 
this is what you sign up for as a Christian, as suffering. But how do we endure? Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Dear church, as we consider Christ who endured the hostility of the cross by the hands of hostile sinners, he is now seated at the right hand of God where he is reigning over all things, and all things are in subjection to him. Let us not grow weary in enduring suffering because we serve a victorious Christ. Now, perhaps you're here and you're thinking, well, pastor, I see the victory of Jesus here. I see his resurrection. I see him on the throne. But how does that give me hope to what I'm facing right now? I'm still suffering. Maybe that's what these believers are thinking. These believers are being slandered and tortured and exiled from their home. And Peter encourages them that the Christ who has suffered and has risen victorious and all things are now and subject to him. And even these Roman rulers who are persecuting them are in subjection to Christ, yet they are still persecuting them. So how does this give us hope? Here comes my second point. We're already done with point number one. We might get out early. Through our union with Christ, the saints who are reviled will be the saints who reign with Christ. Through our union with Christ, the saints who are reviled will be the saints who reign with Christ. When we begin to look at the rest of this content in this portion of Scripture, certainly it comes with a set of interpretive difficulties. We may never come to a definitive answer to where Christ went, to what he preached, to whom these spirits are that he's preaching, or when he went there. But what we see here through this is there's this reference to these men who were disobedient during the days of Noah. We, uh, we see these men disobedient during the days of Noah, and we see the patience of God waiting in those days as the ark was being built there in verse 20. Why this reference to Noah and the ark? What's going on here? Well, what we see in this particular passage here is, is God is ready to pour out his wrath. We remember Genesis 6 and 7, all the... The whole earth is evil continually. God is ready to execute his judgment by, through the flood, but he is waiting patiently, not, not because he expects some mass conversion or repentance, but he's waiting patiently for the construction of the ark so that he can save Noah and his family. Now, it's interesting to say that it, it, it doesn't say that they were saved from the water, but it says that they were saved through the water. They were brought safely through the water so that 
the very same waters that brought judgment upon those who did not repent are the same waters that brought salvation to those who are in the ark. That points to the cross. The same work of Christ brought judgment upon those who failed to come to him, but it brings salvation to those who are in Christ and united to Christ. Now I want to draw out something from this story of Noah and the ark that I believe will help us understand what's being said in this text here. Now, if you remember the story in Genesis, chapter 6 and 7, of the story of Noah and the ark, you remember why Noah was selected? So that Noah found favor with God. Now, we don't know particularly why he found favor with God. Maybe he had a really nice haircut or had a nice shirt. I, I don't know. Noah found favor with God, but what about Noah's sons and his wives? What does it say about them? Nothing. Absolutely nothing about Noah's sons and his family. And here's what I want to make the connection. The reason that Noah's sons and their wives were also spared and saved was not because of anything in them, but because they were united to Noah. Noah's Sons and his wives were saved through the ark because of their connection to Noah. This is why the, we're going to get to why that's important. In verse 21, and we're going to get into some, some theology here in just a little bit because we have to. It's a very difficult passage. We're going to explain some things. In verse 21, we see this phrase corresponding to that, corresponding to Noah and the ark. It says, baptism now saves you. Well, that adds a level of, of controversy there as well. It's another difficult passage to deal with. But corresponding to that, this phrase corresponding to, it's a word in the compound Greek, antitypos. And a typos is a figure or a shadow. Scriptures use this word typos in the Greek as a person or a thing that prefigures a greater reality. Before we look at what this word antitypos means in our text, what does this word typos mean? We see this in Romans 5.14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam who is a type or form, typos in the Greek, of him who was to come. It says Adam was a type of him, Christ, who was to come. Now, the Bible uses this word type in a very different way than we do. Okay, so this is why this bears some explanation. When I use this word, I can say Snickers is a type of candy bar. It means that it has common characteristics with other candy bars. Milky Way, Three Musketeers, whatever, and now you're getting hungry and ready to go buy one. That's not my fault. But that's how we use the word. It is a type. It means it shares these common characteristics. The Bible uses this word very differently, and its counterpart, antitypos, in a very different way. In the Greek, a typos, or type, is a person, place, or thing that prefigures a greater reality. 
So therefore, typos then is a person, place, or thing that finds its fulfillment in that which it corresponds to, or the antitypos. I know that's all a little fuzzy. Let me explain. In this text in Romans that I shared, Adam is a real historical person and is said to be a type, which means prefiguring the, the greater reality of Christ. And in verse 19, it says that by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many were made righteous. With all of this, Adam prefigures Christ in a sense as Adam is a representative to those who are condemned. And Christ is a greater representative to those who are redeemed. Another truth here, we are condemned not so much because of our own individual sins, but we are condemned because of our union to Adam, because he's our representative. And we are redeemed because of our union to Christ. Now going back to our text in 1 Peter, the antitypos, or the thing corresponding to the thing prefiguring it, the antitypos is the fulfillment of the shadow, the corresponding to this. This is the fulfillment of what has just come before. So Noah was a real person. The ark and the flood were real events that really happened. But in God's grand narrative, this event points to a greater reality. The salvation of Noah and his family united to Noah points to something greater. And then it says here, baptism now saves you. Now this is not somehow promoting that the waters of baptism somehow have some regenerative power. Okay, When we do a baptism, it is symbolic of what has happened inside us and, and, and because of Christ. But this is not referring to water baptism. In fact, the text pretty much explains that right after that. So I don't know why people get hung up on this who think that baptism saves. Because it says this, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's literally saying right here, not, I'm not talking about water baptism. I'm not talking about the removal of dirt here. But what I am talking about is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of of Christ. It's not water baptism that saves, but our immersion into Christ, our union with the risen Christ that saves us. Now, just so that you know, I'm not pulling this out of a hat or out of thin air. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I hope you kept your place in 1 Peter because we're going right back there. Romans chapter 6, or you, do you not know, verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, so there's that word baptism, we've baptized into Christ, we've been baptized into his death, therefore we have been buried 
with him. So we weren't physically buried, but we're united to Christ in that. And we're, we're buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in newness of life. Well, what does this mean, being baptized into Christ? Well, that's explained in the very next verse, in verse 5. For if we have become what? United with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So for Paul in Romans, and I believe Peter here, baptism is not water baptism. It is about our union, our immersion into Christ. So let's put this all together and bring this, put a nice little pretty bow on it. Just as Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons and their wives were saved and were victorious through the waters of the ark because of their union to Noah, so we too, because we've been baptized into Christ, united to Christ, just as Christ rose victorious, we too will rise victoriously. He suffered and we too must suffer, but he rose and we too will rise and walk in newness of life. Colossians 3 says, we too will be raised with Christ. But there's more. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just a few passages behind. There goes 1 Peter and Hebrews. Philemon, Titus, go backwards. 2 Timothy. This is where it gets good. I think it's been good so far. First, in, in this passage in 2 Timothy, and Paul has been writing to Timothy to encourage him to remain faithful when others are not. Uh, he's told them in chapter 3, difficult times are coming. He's Encouraged him to remain faithful in preaching the word in chapter 4 when others will not listen to it. Remember, that's the text I preached uh, this very day last year. And he tells him in chapter 1, retain the standard of sound words, guard the gospel. People are going to go away from it, but, but you stand firm. And in chapter 2, he's continuing to, 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 to encourage Timothy to remain, stand firm. It's interesting, he, he gets to verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. Now, I don't think that, that Timothy has somehow forgotten who Jesus is. I don't think Timothy is suffering from a senior moment. I don't think Timothy's like, oh man, what's, oh, that Messiah guy, what's his name? Oh yeah, Jesus, that's not what's happening here, and, and and I don't think Timothy has forgotten that Jesus rose from the dead either. It's not like, okay, yeah, I didn't know Jesus. Oh, what did, I know he did something to, to save people, but it was, oh yeah, he rose from, no, he's not forgetful in that sense. But what Paul is doing is trying to anchor Timothy to the gospel. Remember Christ. Remember his resurrection. Remember that he is alive. But he continues on, Paul says, For which I suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal, for, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things. Again, 
Peter's writing in 1 Peter to these believers who are suffering so that they endure. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation for which is in Christ Jesus and with eternal glory. And then we have verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. Now, Timothy does this five times. Paul does this five times in 1st and 2nd Timothy and in Titus, five times where it says it is a trustworthy statement. Now, just to put it out there, when the Bible says it's a trustworthy statement, you probably ought to pay attention. You can probably hang your hat here. He says in verse 11, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. That's the language he used in Romans 6. Remember that? We've been buried with him into his death and we will be raised with him in his resurrection. We are united to him. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Oh, but 12, this is where it gets good. Look at verse 12. If we endure. If we endure. Dear church, being a Christian means you've got to endure some stuff, right? You've got to go through some junk as a believer because of your faith in Christ. You've got to endure some things. Peter's audience has to endure, endure suffering, endure this persecution from Nero. These believing wives in in chapter 3 have got to endure this marriage to their unbelieving husband as difficult as it may be at times, but endure. Why? Oh, here's the good news, church, verse 12. If we endure... We will also reign with him. Man, that is good news. Man, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. I can't help you. If we endure suffering, if we endure mockings and slander, if we endure imprisonment for our faith, if we endure even to the point of death because of our union to Christ, we will one day reign with him. Amen to that. The church is being reviled now. Christians are being slandered and persecuted now. Christians are being dragged to their death now but praise be to God that the church will triumph and if we endure we too will reign with him and what Peter is doing now is encouraging these believers that just in the days of Noah when Noah's family rose victorious from the waters of judgment those who are united to Christ will triumph as Christ also has been victorious. He is telling them, do not lose heart. There is light at the end of the tunnel. You too will come out of all of this suffering victorious and triumphant. He's been telling them thus far in the first Peter to look to the cross. Look to the one who bore your sins in his body. Look to the one who atoned you by precious blood. But Be holy because he's bought you with precious blood. Submit to suffering because Christ submitted to suffering. Chapter 3, also, it's good that you suffer because Christ also did the same thing. He died so that he may bring us to God. And through our union with him, praise God, he does that. But now he's telling these believers, don't look to Jesus on the cross. Look to Jesus on the throne. Don't look to the one who is reviled. Look to the one who is reigning. Don't look to the Jesus in agony, but look to the Jesus who is exalted. 
And dear brothers, as you suffer, take heart that though you are being reviled one day, if you endure, you too will reign with him. You who suffer now will be brought safely to God and will suffer no more. Peter sees Christ as victorious here. And he sees that the church, through our union with Christ, as one who will ultimately triumph. I believe he has this hope because something that Jesus told him rings in his ears. We've studied this in our Sunday school class. In Matthew 16, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus himself, the ears of Peter, says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus himself told Peter that the church will be triumphant. Dear brothers and sisters, Peter's day and in Paul's day, Timothy's day, certainly different than ours. They dealt with their own battles in first century, in the first century as the gospel was spreading for the first time. They dealt with a certain set of false teaching. We deal with our own sets of false teaching. Certainly there's some differences. But yet in many ways we're dealing with the same thing. The gospel confronts the ideologies of our day. Just as men didn't want to hear the gospel proclaimed then, they don't want to hear it now. Just as Christians suffered then, Christians will suffer now. But dear believers, I know it's tempting to grow weary and lose heart. I know it's tempting to say, Lord, how long? How long have we got to endure? Jesus, when are you going to come back? When are you going to right all these wrongs? Don't grow weary and lose heart, but look to the triumph of Christ. Here's the good news. Listen, we may never know where Jesus went in verse 19. We don't know what he preached. We may never fully understand who he preached to or when he preached. Man, I really want to ask Peter those questions. Hopefully when I get to heaven, I'll have a chance to say, Peter, do you realize how unclear this was? I wish Peter could just send us an email. All right, let me clear it up. We may never know where Jesus went in verse 19. We may never know what he preached. We may never fully understand who it is that he preached to or when he preached it. But praise be to God, we know where Jesus is now. And that's the point of this passage is that Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God and all things are in subjection to him He is reigning victorious, and through our union with him, church, we will triumph. So take heart. Endure. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. Do you want that? In this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. 
I have overcome the world. Let's pray.